Before you go, we want to let you know about a special offer for one of our most popular self-paced online courses. Led by Thomas, The Art of Attunement includes seven modules of recorded teachings and guided meditations, plus a special bonus package of attunement practices to help heal the illusion of separation. This program can benefit healers, therapists, and anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the relational dynamics that connect us and an increased capacity for presence. Enroll by March 21st and get 50% off the regular price for the course. To learn more, visit artofattunementcourse.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the point of relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Sujata Baliga is a former victim advocate and public defender and a frequent guest lecturer at universities and conferences about her decades of restorative justice work. She also speaks publicly and inside prisons about her own experiences as a survivor of child sexual abuse and her path to forgiveness. She's a member of the Gyutu Foundation in Richmond, California, where she leads meditations on Monday nights. And she was named a 2019 MacArthur Fellow. Welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit. My name is Thomas Hubel, and I'm the convener of the summit. And I have the great honor and pleasure uh, to welcome Sujata Baliga. Sujata, welcome. Uh, I'm so happy you're here with me, and uh, warm welcome to you to the summit. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I think we, we do have... Uh, like some passions in common, and I would love to explore some of them deeper with you. But to start us off, um, I think it's always interesting to see what's the correlation between our calling and our life journey, or maybe sometimes our own trauma journey. And by mastering part of our own trauma journey, we actually develop the potential to serve the world in a different way or in a deeper way. And I wonder what's what in you brought you to do what you do and to be passionate and energetic as you are. What called you and and how did restorative justice find you or anything that you are passionate about today? So maybe you can speak a bit about your journey. Well, thank you so much for this beautiful question. Such a uh, wonderful way to open. I think about a lot. Um, my indigenous friends who uh, always start any kind of collective thing with a discussion of sort of their lineage and what brings them to the room today, right? And so in a sense, mine is a spiritual lineage, one that I'm incredibly grateful and the, the serendipity with which I landed um, 
in the direction that I've been going for the past 25, 30 years now, um, comes from a painful place. It starts in a very painful place. So, um, and I know that the audience uh, can handle this information and they would not have signed up for a collective trauma summit if they uh, did not know that they would be hearing about some trauma. So um, my personal uh, trauma involves um, having grown up primarily in a small town in a rural part of the United States in Pennsylvania, um, uh, very Appalachia adjacent or Appalachia, depending on how you pronounce it, and um, really isolated and um, experiencing a lot of harm both inside and outside of my home. I was the only child of color in my school and was experiencing a lot of racist bullying um, and violence, really. I think bullying sometimes downplays the severity of what it is that I endured. And in my own home, I was being sexually abused by my father, who was also quite um, emotionally abusive uh, to others in my family. And, um, and that trauma, he passed away when I was 16 years old, and we were never able to have any sense of healing or justice um, before his death. But what, um, what I did was I channeled my rage, uh, about what had happened to me, uh, into victim advocacy. And so I thought, uh, eventually I thought I would go to law school to become a prosecutor, but just before beginning law school, I was living in India again, uh, working, uh, with my then boyfriend, uh, trying to work with him to, uh, with, uh, trafficking survivors, uh, girls who had been taken from Nepal, and, and being sold into sexual slavery in Mumbai. And um, I had a complete breakdown, uh, went on a somewhat suicidal backpacking journey uh, into the Himalaya, where uh, through an amazing course of events, guided me towards sort of unpacking what I was carrying uh, psychologically uh, through their own honest sharing of their own traumas uh, in their escape from Tibet, um, from Chinese-occupied Tibet. And... Um, uh, suggested that I write a note to the Dalai Lama uh, asking him about uh, forgiveness in the face of uh, interfamilial harm. And so I wrote a note, tore a page out of my journal, dropped it off at his uh, monastery, uh, his, uh, his office, his residence. And uh, a week later, uh, received a response that I was going to be offered an hour-long private audience with the Dalai Lama. So I am 24 years old. Um, I'm very lost and enraged and confused uh, child, uh, still very, that prefrontal cortex had surely not finished cooking. And I, I and uh, was really, really a, a, a very angry and very difficult person back then. Um, and for God knows what reason, um, the universe knows what reason, um, I was given this beautiful opportunity um, to sit with His Holiness for an hour and really grapple with uh, what he had been through when he was a 24-year-old, um, escaping the country that he was destined to lead. And, um, and through that dialogue, really came to a deeper understanding of forgiveness um, and of justice and of uh, what, what those things might look like um, in my own life. And I followed his very sage advice about how I might want to rein in my own mind um, and begin practicing meditation. Um, and through following his advice, um, changed the entire trajectory of my life. Uh, you know, ended up actually becoming a defense attorney and ultimately working on capital cases, uh, even death penalty cases, um, and cases of people who had been accused of doing what had been done to me. Um, and in that journey, ended up following one of the pieces of advice he had given me, which was to find some way to open my heart to the people that I consider my enemies. Uh, and so that really 
changed the whole trajectory of my life. Uh, and um, what a blessing it's been. I don't know. Um, it, it ultimately led me to restorative justice in that my work as a victim advocate uh, really just looked at one side of things. And then when I was working as a defense attorney, for the most part, I also was only looking at one side of things. And restorative justice invited me into a new space, one in which we could think what I like to call holding um, with equal partiality, uh, all those affected by harm, those who've caused harm, those who've experienced it in their families and communities. And so that for me was really uh, the selling point of restorative justice, that there was a place in which we could heal all of us. Because when I look back on my childhood, that's surely what I wanted uh, for my own family. Uh, as much as I wanted what my father was doing to stop, I would have never wanted him incarcerated. I would have never wanted um, you know, harm to, to befall any of us. Uh, and so that really drew me to this this idea of uh, restorative justice. It's lovely to hear like how the blessing of your soul, because I believe that uh, like resources are being drawn into our life because of our inner resources and how you actually really took that blessing of meeting his holiness in uh, into your life, into service. I think that's really beautiful. And I think that's, and that's often how, you know, that when we experience healing, how it opens our hearts to serve more. And your life journey seems to be is obviously a, a pretty beautiful example of, of that, that you channel that into, into serving the world. It's beautiful. It's lovely to hear. Also, you already connected it to, to the restorative justice. So let's start there. And then maybe I'll come back to what you said say a few words about restorative justice so that everybody for whom it might be a bit new or doesn't know the principles, uh, maybe you can set the frame and then I have a few questions. Uh, around. Sure. Deeply influenced by someone who's known as the grandfather of restorative justice. Um, his name is Howard Zare and uh, Z-E-H-R. And he is a uh, He's become like a, an uncle to me. He's a grandfather, I think, to the movement, but for me, uh, really has is, is become an uncle. The way he frames restorative justice, he's one of the seminal thinkers in the field, and I think actually he's credited with coining the phrase or first defining it. And he really defines it as a paradigm shift in the way in which we think about harm and wrongdoing uh, and juxtaposing it with the current criminal legal system or the ways in which we think about justice, particularly from a Western frame. Um, as this very punitive system that asks what law was broken, who broke it, how shall they be punished? And we think about it in the school discipline context and what rule was broken, um, what child broke it, how should they be, um, how should they be punished for it? Um, and punishment really being the infliction of pain uh, in order to teach a lesson. And the paradigm shift that restorative justice calls us to uh, inadvertently eschews uh, punitiveness by centering the person who has experienced the harm. So instead of starting with what law was broken, which is really a question of systems uh, of control, the first question is who was harmed? And what do they need is the second question. And then what creates the justice paradigm is the third question, which is whose obligation is it to meet those needs? And so, um, you know, meeting the needs doesn't require pain. It may be experienced as uncomfortable. When I cause harm and it is my duty to make things right, uh, that might be uncomfortable. I may have to return the thing I've stolen. I may have to, and I may not want to do that, right? But it's not inflicting punishment for its own sake. 
And so this is the paradigm shift that restorative justice calls us to. It centers harms and needs and obligations and also addresses causes, root causes. How did we end up here uh, on all fronts? You know, what, what were the, and by including family and community in these conversations, right? Ideally, ideally we are bringing together the person who has caused the harm and the person who's experienced it for a dialogue where they are well supported by family and community and loved ones, people who are well resourced to sit in that circle, in that conversation, in that conference, uh, to help come up with a plan to repair the harm. And that plan needs to look at root causes as well. And so this goes far beyond anything that our current systems of punishment and blame and um, separation really do to us. Uh, it's calling us in a whole new direction or a whole old direction. If you look at <laughs> certain yeah. communities that have done this um, since time immemorial, right? That this was the way that you would heal a thing uh, to make things right. I love that in a whole old direction. That's a great <laughs> sentence for like surfacing some of the principles that were there for thousands of years already. <laughs> right? And uh, you said something I want you to expand a bit on. You said people in this circle that are well-resourced. Can you tell me a bit about well-resourced? Mm -hmm. So oh, what a beautiful question. Um, I'm going to try to stop saying that after each one of your questions. But, um, <laughs> so there are different types of resources that all of us bring. Uh, when a harm has occurred, right, it was never just that one person's uh, cause. I've never solely caused the problems that are existing in my life, nor, um, nor am I the sole solution to them. Everything requires collectivity to heal. And uh, there are many, many gifts and skills uh, that people can bring to a circle or to a conference. Um, and there are also many, um, many blind spots and deficits that also need to be brought out into the circle. And so, um, so the people in the circle uh, may have different things that they can offer, uh, vantage points that they've seen in each person's life. Uh, the severity of the harm, how it's landed on someone. Let's say that I've been harmed and I'm incapable of saying how badly it's impacting me, but my sister can see. You know, to have her in the circle can really help the person who's harmed me understand the severity of the harm that's occurred, right? Um, and in the same way, I once facilitated a dialogue between parents um, of a girl whose life was taken and the young man who took her life and the father of the boy who took her life, took responsibility for having taught his son about rage, having taught his son, um, as he said, I taught him how to be this angry and, and we didn't teach him how to manage his emotions, right? Like these kinds of things, uh, we need all of those voices in the circle. Um, and so that is a resource as well, when you think about it, really being able to identify root causes and harm. So it's not all the positive stuff. It's not just that like uncle, you know, Sam has a has a um, an, an auto body shop where a, the kid can get a job uh, to come up with the money to pay back the person that they 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 stole from. Right. That's a that's a wonderful material resource. And we do want that Uncle Sam in the circle. Right. Um, but there are other resources, too. Uh, and so having everyone who's uh, both directly impacted uh, and also those who are seem more tangential sometimes are the people that bring uh, the special sauce that makes uh, 
the dish really beautiful, makes, makes the circle really, really grow. So um, there's emotional resources. There's the ability to sit in the fire and listen to really hard things. You're going to need a couple of those people. Uh, you need people who have a peacemaking heart. Uh, you definitely don't want to include the people who like to stir stir things up and make them worse, right? So we spend a lot of time mapping people's family and community structure. Who's been there for you? Who's believed in you? Uh, who co-signs your worst behavior? Uh, let's exclude that person. Who um, who likes to stir things up? Let's maybe not invite that person, right? And trying to create the right group of people that will bring everything that's needed to help move forward in a good way. Mm -hmm. Move forward in a good way. Mm -hmm. So what I hear is that it's a curated process, basically, that needs a lot of preparatory work. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it moves a lot faster than one might suspect. You can do like two or three meetings in advance of uh, bringing everyone together. Um, I think that too much curation actually takes the beauty out of it um, and the power out of it. And it professionalizes it in a way that I think is actually not beneficial. Uh, one of the things we want people to understand in a restorative process is that um, there's this thing we say here in the States, we got us, we got us. Like we don't need state intervention. We don't need the professionalization. Uh, we actually have everything that we need right here in our family and community in order to make things good. So that's, um, so that's one of the things we wanted people to understand. I have one more question that I think many people might ask is, like there's the punitive aspect of incarceration, for example, um, or the law system. But then on the other hand, people might say, for example, as you said in, in your own example, the, the person that took another person's life. So how, how does restorative justice make sure or create the safety that these kind of things are not repetitive? Because we could say, or at least that's also how I look at, at the things that often trauma is at the root of any kind of violent acts. So there's a pre-traumatization already there. And in many ways, trauma is repetitive. So if a person that got triggered heavily and committed a crime, what? how does it ensure the community that that's not going to happen again? So maybe you can speak a bit to because I think that might be one of the main concerns also in, in a community. Absolutely. In thinking about uh, what we call recidivism here in the United States, right, like um, repeat offenses, um, people causing harm again and again, what's interesting is that we have a, I think we have a false belief that our current punitive systems actually make us safer. Um, they actually don't. Um, if anything, I think um, they're bound to make us less safe. And when we walk into any prison, you could say, what kind of what kind of situation is this here that would cause us to uh, think that that anybody would come out of here in a better condition uh, to turn their life around? You know, it's um, so uh, what we've seen actually in our studies with young people in my previous organization, Impact Justice, uh, working with uh, young people who've committed some pretty serious offenses. What's what are labeled felonies here in the U.S. Uh, uh, we found that. Uh, in doing a comparative analysis between kids who go through the system, uh, the regular system of justice versus going through restorative justice, uh, we've seen a 44% reduction in recidivism. So it's actually in the public interest uh, to be doing restorative justice instead. Moreover, we've seen a 91% satisfaction rate 
amongst crime survivors. And so this to me says a lot, right? And unfortunately, we're not able to do a comparative analysis because the legal system does not keep track of data of the satisfaction of people who have experienced harm. Um, it presupposes that its own conviction rate is the thing that survivors want. Uh, but if we really just sat down and talked with survivors about what do we really want, right? Um, a conviction rate was the, I didn't want my father convicted at all. Like, why would you assume uh, that that is what I needed? I needed a whole lot of other things and that was not one of them. And so a big part of what draws me to this work is knowing that that is true of most crime survivors. Like we have a whole lot of needs for healing. Uh, and one of them is to be assured that this person won't do it again. And so restorative justice has a way better track record on that front uh, than our current systems. So what do you think is or are the deciding factors that and change like a perpetrator's interior architecture in order to come to a restoration themselves. And from there, like what are the factors? Because I think that's what many people might be concerned about, like that that's not going to happen and that there is a threat around us. And you said, okay, on the long term there, we see uh, like the data shows us something else. But I think that the fear of many people might be more immediate. And so what, what do you think are, or what do you, do you know are the, the factors that help to create a restorative process that will eventually lead to a change? How do you, as somebody who facilitates these processes, feel, know, um, understand that that's happening? Maybe there are, so maybe you can speak a bit to that. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's two things that I would start with. First is that we don't ever use words like perpetrator or offender or rapist or murderer. I, they feel uh, they feel like poison coming out of my mouth. Um, and um, one of the reasons is that in order to help someone move beyond a moment in their life in which they caused harm, we have to build in them a fundamental belief that that is not who they are. Right and so one of the most important things is locating people in this person's life who has known them for a long time, who can see the goodness within them, and who helps call them back to their true self, right? And so, um, so that's that's a piece of the work. Uh, another thing that is really instrumental is actually the face-to-face -face meeting with the person that you harmed and understanding the impact of your behavior. When we approach things from a place of punitiveness, uh, the person who, when we, the, those, you know, questions of the criminal legal system, who was, uh, you know, what law was broken, who broke it, the focus is on the person who's caused the harm, right? Um, and that puts them in a defensive position against the system. And it causes people to say, uh-uh, I didn't do it. Um, especially when, as in here, you know, the consequences of saying that you stole a car could be six years, eight years, nine years in prison. I have a friend who, starting at the age of 16, served nine years in an adult facility um, because of, uh, of, of taking someone's car. Okay, so like this kind of thing um, makes you go, I didn't do it. And I didn't do it when you did is literally the opposite of what we need in order to help people move in the direction, right, of, of change, of change. And so believing it, like, unconditional love does not have to be soft, 
right? And so really welcoming someone instead of starting with shaking your finger, I am not saying that there is not a healthy amount of finger shaking that absolutely has to happen. I leave that to the grandma. I leave that to somebody else to say to their own child in these preparatory, their, these own preparatory sessions, right? Being like, that is not how we do in our family. Um, it's better than some external authority figure who the person can really reject, uh, but somebody that they care about being like, you know better than this. We taught you better than this. Or I didn't teach you better than this. How can we turn this around now? Right. Um, and and so those kinds of things, I really see a lot of change uh, in people. People, again, coming back to the question of resources, it is it is patently unfair to ask uh, people to be responsible for the things that they've done when they've done them out of a place of desperation, um, which is a lot of crime that happens in the United States. Right. And so I think that it's a very difficult moment, I think, in the restorative justice movement for us to figure out how do we call people to account for their individualized harm when there's been massive amounts of structural oppression that has given rise to most of the harms that occur, right? And so one of the things I think are really important is for us to figure out how to resource the people who've caused harm. Um, we don't have universal basic income. We don't have universal basic services. We don't have health insurance. I mean, this is, this is a true fiasco, right? And so to ask people uh, to be responsible when the world has always let them down, there's going to have to be some piece of it uh, that includes um, supporting a person, giving them a basic ground to stand on before they can, can um, be in a position to make things right. That's a lot to put on the restorative justice facilitators, like to, to correct for all that is wrong with the United States before, before asking someone to be responsible uh, is, is too much to ask right now. Uh, and at the same time, um, uh, you know, is something that I think we should be aspiring towards, like what kinds of systems can we create? If we are creating, as I'd like to call it, off the grid restorative justice processes, where instead of criminalization, we are doing this uh, in lieu of criminalization. And there are many district attorneys across the nation who are agreeing to divert cases before even charging the case to a restorative process. When it is resolved, then the district attorney declines to prosecute the case, that it has been uh, satisfactorily done. Um, and, um, you know, one of the problems with trying to get these things started is, again, resources. Uh, we, we do not do right by our unresourced humans in the United States. And that, that is a real struggle. That's right. Yeah, that's my next question. Yeah, I'm, I'm consciously asking some questions that might be in our society, yeah, you know, absolutely. so that we, that we can hear your responses. Well, and sure. um, so that uh, you are leading me actually to also my next question is when you say we want to have resourced environments and many people that suffer in the current injustice do not have those resources or many of those resources. So how do you as a facilitator um, cohere the resources that are there? And what is if there are really under-resourced systems where, you know, the resources have really been depleted and that is also a source, as you said, of uh, violence or any other uh, acts. So maybe you can speak a little bit to, if you have a great system with a grandmother and uh, whatever, all the all the resources that a family or a, uh, a circle of friends can give. So then that's great. Uh, but what if we don't have that? Yeah. And what if we have a very traumatizing or traumatized environment already? How do you extract those resources then? 
Yeah. So again, it goes back to having a deep conversation with the first and foremost, with, with the, with the most directly impacted people, the people who caused the harm, the people who've experienced the harm and really mapping their lives. Um, who believes in you, who, where, where's a place you feel safe going after schools. And sometimes those meetings are heartbreaking because the answer is nobody, nowhere, nothing. Um, there was an eighth grader once who I was working with, who had been accused of choking one of her classmates um, nearly to death at school um, and, you know, had been charged, was going to be charged with this crime. Um, I don't think that the system understood the severity of the harm uh, before sending it my way. It was through excavating and deeper conversations with the people who witnessed and saw and were part of this uh, that I understood how severe the harm actually was. Um, and in working with the child who caused the harm, the parents were like, we're done with her. We don't want to We take her away. Um, they were upset that she was getting an opportunity to not be locked up, right? We couldn't find anyone. And we just kept asking and asking, like, who else has believed in you? Who else? And 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 we started, um, the person I was co-facilitating with said, okay, this is eighth grade. Who believed in you in seventh grade? Who believed in you in sixth grade? We got back all the way third grade, second grade. And when we said second grade, the child and her parents lit up. They both were like, huh? My second grade teacher really liked me and they lit up to They're like, yeah, she really loved you. And so we hunted down her second grade teacher and we brought that teacher to this circle. And so and that teacher then got completely involved in this child's life again, uh, was having this child volunteer uh, in her classroom. Um, all of these things happened that really changed the trajectory of that that young woman's life, that 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 girl's life. Um, and so that. Um, so that can happen. So you do actually have to dig. Like you'd be surprised that there are actually people with resources uh, that have been in direct contact with this person. Um, and this is true for adults too. We do the same thing when we're working with adults and you, we sometimes have to go pretty far back, but you call somebody and say, oh, I remember that guy. Yeah, I'd love to help him out, right? And they'll show up, people show up for each other. Um, especially people who, who saw the light in you uh, a long time ago. Uh, they don't wanna see that light go out. So that does happen, okay? And, and sometimes that does not happen. And so sometimes we do have to have like a binder of resources in the, in the, in the neighborhood. You know, is there a mentoring program that we can hook this child? Can we, can we create that? The restorative justice facilitator cannot become all things to that child. Right or that adult, uh, we can't we can't be everyone's new you know uncle and auntie as much as we might want to, and that's actually a part of the personality I think that comes to this work. Um, so sometimes it's it's accessing resources that already exist, programs, after school programs, this that the other. Uh, this child needs to join a, a sports team instead of being hang, hanging out on that street corner. That this adult needs. Um, a, a violence intervention, um, you know, program that will help them better understand their behavior. Uh, so sometimes we're resourcing with resources. Uh, but what I want to say is that um, I think a lot about the three roots that my uh, that my teachers come from, the three areas uh, that that sort of I've learned the most from. Um, First and foremost, Mennonite people, who are they're similar to Amish people, right, uh, here in the United States. Uh, Navajo, my Navajo teachers, uh, Diné people, uh, particularly Chief Justice Emeritus of the uh, Navajo Supreme Court, uh, Robert Yazi, 
And um, and then in my own, there's an Indian tradition of Buddhism, the Nalanda tradition. Nalanda tradition was kept alive by Tibetan Buddhists, um, was lost to India, but kept alive by Tibetans. And so when I think about the amount of oppression that these three groups of people have suffered, right? Um, and I think about the, the notion that despite oppression, that we have an individual responsibility to be our best selves, right? The external re resources uh, may never come. The, the oppressor may never stop. Who do I want to be despite all that? And what does it mean uh, to teach our young people, to teach each other how to be like, oh, I don't care what all you do to me. I will not be, I will not be reduced to uh, these rote uh, behaviors that are expected. You, you want to turn me into that monster. I will never be that monster. Or I will come out from being, be, behaving in those ways, right? Um, despite the fact that you are never going to give me health insurance. You are never going to... Uh, forgive all my student loans. You are never, you're never going to do that. And, and I am still beholden to my own path of goodness. Um, and that, that feels, you know, unfair. Sure. Um, but, uh, but I know that from my, from my own side, um, as someone who will never hear words from many people who have harmed me, I will never, it will never be made right. I, I will never get back the things that were lost to me. Uh, that it's there's still this incredible joy uh, of being my own best self, um, and so um, so I don't want to lose sight of that either. I, I, we it, it it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's the same way that I'm like I don't care who else is doing that when I talk to my son. Oh, who do you want to be? Right? I don't care who did whatever. Like, what's you? Who do you want to be under these circumstances? And I think that that's also actually a piece of the work. Um, that there's quite an amazing, as much as it's collective, collective, collective in restorative justice, there is still a place for um, individual uprightness uh, under impossible circumstances. And the pride that comes from that, that's a fire that can do all kinds of good in the future. So yeah, that fire I can definitely feel from you. Uh, <laughs> you're radiating that. That's so beautiful. It's so refreshing to listen to you. And to summarize something for myself that I hear from you in order for you to see if that relates to your experience. So what I'm hearing is in mapping, like the relational resource environment, we actually also map the inner architecture of the person, which is in interdependence with the external. So that let's say the teacher is relating to a lit up part in the nervous system of the person. When the person touches into that part, they are more relational than they touch the traumatizing part of the all the other school years where the teacher didn't like me and I, I contract. So basically, you're well for me, you are describing kind of an external, internal, which is interdependent mapping of the resources. So by scanning going through somebody's life, we actually touch into what are the parts of me where I'm relational, where I can feel myself and I can feel you. And that's why that part can reconnect me to a restorative process. And I'm I'm just curious if you would agree to that. Uh, yeah, because that's, absolutely. that's because that's really powerful. That means that when we find 
like access to the parts in everybody that where that's that's happening so that's the channel through which restoration can actually be received also inside because often it's not happening because it touches us where we get shamed blamed whatever uh discredited but if we find a different entry to the core of a person that's where we we want to grow that's what's naturally built into everybody so and i, I hear when i listen to you i hear uh, a sophisticated way to find access to where restoration can happen. And then that's transformational and life-changing. Maybe you want to comment a little bit on what I'm saying. Now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that occurs to me is some of the best restorative justice facilitators I know, one by the name of Ashley George, always starts these meetings with the the person who's caused harm. Uh, she's, she opens it, they're like trepidatious and they're like, I'm in trouble and they're going to talk to me about the thing I did wrong. And she starts with like, what lights you on fire? What makes you feel good? What What are you good at? When do you feel good about yourself? Like These are the questions. The whole process starts with, and people might hear that and be like, I'm sorry, somebody robbed somebody and you want to start with what do you like? It helps open up the possibility of those connections you're talking about, right? So now that we've, we're talking with this young man who'd stolen some cars and uh, stripped a bunch of cars and was getting initiated into a process of doing a lot of harm with a group of other people um, and, um, you know, uh, finding out that he's an excellent artist um, and uh, was really interesting in that process was also in the end, this this thing that the um, the person he'd, one of the people he'd harmed asked for was a painting. Uh, to repair the harm, they wanted him to paint this big, beautiful thing and and then connecting him to community-based artists who would help him hone his art. And so that that growth uh, really is, it's a, it's a really remarkable thing. So absolutely. What's that individual spark that is in every single one of us, even if it's been under layers and layers of harm and oppression that have been caused to you before you go out and, and, and cause some more harm, right? Um, it's there, it's always there. And then uh, the you can't you can't really fan that flame yourself. You need other people mm -hmm. fanning it. Exactly. Um, and finding the right people to fan it, it's really a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's that's uh, beautiful because that that actually adds another step that then we reconnected resource we found to something in the community where the person can express that and feel that like a positive upward cycle again in the society because it's energized. So that's really beautiful. And and I'm I have a few more questions. We heard you speak a lot about the I Tao and the relational aspect of the people involved. I'm also curious because I think every violence, every crime can be seen as within that relational context or can be seen also as part of the third side, as William Yuri calls it, like can be part of the community. So how am I involved in the crimes that are happening in my neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Like, what is my unconscious contribution, maybe not even conscious, but my unconscious contribution through my own absence, where I, I can't feel something, where I don't notice things, or where I don't act when actually my action is needed in order to spark something or prevent something. And, and I'm... I'm curious how restorative justice speaks to the community responsibility. Like there's the, the, the responsibility in everybody directly involved. But then how, how do we, as the we, 
participate through the eyes of uh, restorative justice in the restorative process. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can speak a little to that or how you look at that maybe. My work in the broader, so there's two different ways to think about restorative justice. There's like the big restorative justice. And then there's the very, like, I'm a lawyer by training, right? And so I think about uh, specific harms and how we heal them, right? And, um, but there is a bigger picture of people learning to sit in circles, in dialogues, in conversations at the community level and talk about what is happening here and how are we connected to one another? And so I think one of the most important things is that, like, I get stuck answering this question with regard to my individual processes, uh, because we have become so broken as a society that most of us don't even know our neighbors' names. Most people don't know their neighbors' mm-hmm names. Uh, so to say, how can I pull people in when they don't even know, you know, that, that I exist, right, is, um, is a big problem. And so um, I think one of the things that we just need is more civic engagement and involvement, not just at a political level, but just as a community level. We need more barbecues. We need more, you know, street fairs. We need to really bring that back it's hard to imagine how to fold people in to restorative processes on the individual level without the pre-existing relationship um, because they feel like outsiders um, at that point. And so for me, it is about building deep relationship, right? And so, you know, last night, uh, this family in the neighborhood that we've known for a long time stops by. I know they've been in various forms of crisis. um, And uh, I know my son has homework. I know that he is not done. I know that that kid wants to get to know my kid better. There is a teenager in crisis sitting on my back porch uh, in a pandemic. Uh, That is emotional for me. That is more important than my son's grades. And uh, if we can't get there, uh, then, oh, goodness, we're doomed, you know, because I can see two different roads that this child is going to go down, um, the one who was sitting on my porch. And uh, I'm in love with that kid, right? Um, And I want to see him do well. And so, um, so, I'm sorry, see her do well, to use her proper uh, gender uh, pronoun, which is a part of what's been going on uh, in this family. And I I really, I just, I want to see her flourish. I want to see her thrive. And so, uh, for me, uh, can't, can't, can't say homework is more important than that. Can't say what time dinner is happening is more important than that. Um, cook some extra food and and hope that they'll stay. Uh, you know, like that's that's the work. Um, and so only only then only then if something's going wrong would they think to give me a hauler. Even though I'm like this internationally known expert in the field, right? It's not that's not what neighbors know. Uh, that they they know whether or not uh, they got to hang out on your porch a little longer. Um, they know whether or not you offered them dessert, right? Um, so uh, I, I wish I wish for us more time to to build those kinds of relationships uh, and to stop thinking that my kid getting a good grade on something is more important uh, than than building those relationships. I don't know if that really answered your question, but that's that's a part of the work uh, that we really need to be doing. We've become so polarized. Uh, what does it mean to just? You know, I have a a challenging relationship with another one of my neighbors. We have a huge language barrier. And I think that they've misunderstood uh, things and I've misunderstood things. Um, And and it's just it's been like 12 years of just continually being like, hi, and trying. And, you know, they have a new dog and I'm like, oh, maybe our dogs can play together, you know, um, and and understanding that it's it's always going to be problematic because of the language barrier. um, But also 
just the continued smile, the continued reaching out, the continued taking over, um, you know, a, a bread at the holidays uh, that I baked, like trying uh, to do those kinds of things. Uh, we need so much more of that in our society, uh, even at the risk of being <laughs> humiliated by rejection. I think that's one of the most important things. Like, they may glare at me and wonder why the heck I'm handing them this bread, right? <laughs> and I have no language skills to explain, you know, whatever. It's a holiday in my culture, maybe not in your culture. I don't know what's happening here. Um, but it's that those risks that we have to take uh, to, to get to um, loving engagement uh, with people who... Um, Enemies, strangers can very quickly turn into enemies if we don't sow seeds of love, right? And misunderstandings can grow, especially in close quarters. Um, that can, we, there are frustrations that can grow from construction jobs that never end or, or you know, late night music blasting or whatever. Um, so we have to really, we have to learn to love each other through those kinds of things. Mm, it's beautiful. And of course, it, it answers my question, mainly also through the way it touched you. And I think that shows also the power of your heart, like that, that the relationships and noticing somebody in crisis or somebody who needs to please support right now. And, and that's a very important micro moment that says a lot about the macro movement. You know, I think that that's really, it touched me that it touches you so much. I love it because I think that's a very healthy sign of your involvement. Even if you're globally involved, you know, it's, it also counts how you live your life at home. And that's what you showed right now. And I think that's that's very powerful that we can notice the moments when somebody needs us and that it really needs us and we don't live kind of our regular life. And we miss those moments. And I think that's exactly what I meant. That's, uh, that's beautiful. And so um, from that uh, micro situation, one could say, which I think is very essential because it's that's the specific situations that we live in our daily life. If you look now at there's mass, mass incarceration, there, there are many things that are collective, that are huge. And how do you see the path of restorative justice and uh, its expansion, meeting the needs in our society. What are the kind of counter movements that you face in society uh, that seem like stopping the expansion? Or I don't know, maybe you can speak a little bit to how do we address now the collective issues and what's the power of restorative justice at the moment in, uh, let's say, in the U.S.? I think it's important to understand roots. And so starting with the fact that our um, that mass criminalization uh, is born of uh, the enslavement of African-Americans and uh, the taking of indigenous lands and the repression of labor movements, right? Like the police in the North began uh, as repression of labor movements and uh, in the South as uh, the patrolling of people who are trying to escape slavery. That is what these institutions were born of. Uh, and so um, they are infected with these things, right? Um, and, and number two, I think that the, the whole impetus to say, oh, if somebody uh, does some horrible thing to another person, uh, we're going to do some more horror to that. 
And that is a very base and limbic response and not an enlightened one. Um, and so that is what we have built here. We have built uh, adding trauma to trauma, uh, thinking that that wasn't going to multiply the trauma. And that is what we have done. And so it is hard in the midst of, I mean, again, I used to represent people who are charged with capital crimes. Uh, I've seen autopsy photos of the worst things that humans do to one another, right? Um, I have worked on um, cases of, you know, the distribution of child sexual abuse images. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of these photos. Uh, horror, pure and total horror uh, when, you, when you are faced with these things. Um, and I have to resist the limbic response to want to take a hammer to these things. A hammer will not solve this, right? And so what does it mean to be self-regulated enough uh, as individuals, but be self-regulated enough as a society to come up with responses that will produce the outcomes we want? What do we want? We want safer societies. What do we want? We want less uh, re-offense. What do we want? You know, and, and so is anything we designed to actually move us in that direction? When we have 68, 70% recidivism rates uh, through our current system, if there were a safety device, and I hate to use like this capitalist sort of <laughs> idea, but if there were a safety device that was designed to keep us safer, that failed or made things worse 70% of the time, that would be taken off the market, right? But we are spending billions and trillions of dollars in the United States on a safety device that makes us less safe. Um, if you even buy the story that it is a safety device and not a device of social control, which I am more and more, um, not more and more, have always known is true. Even as a child, I knew not to tell the police about my father, right? And so, um, so, so what do we need? We need uh, data, I think, in some ways is a part of what we need. I know that that may sound like a strange answer, but if people are quite moved by the notion that these alternatives are actually alternatives, these beautiful systems uh, that are much more effective. Um, uh, that's, that's actually compelling to people. Uh, I think we need experiments. I think we need to be brave. Okay, so people are like, what's gonna happen if uh, we do a restorative justice process in this murder case? And I'm like, well, what's happening when we do incarceration with that murder case? Actually, what's happening? What's happening when we do uh, when we try to do incarceration with that rape case? Well, guess what? Less than two percent of people who are even on the radar of the system get convicted. So, well, you know, what's the current thing, right? Can we be creative? Can we be creative and come up with gorgeous outcomes um, and and start to prove over time that these other ways of doing things that these wiser ways, that these ways that align with our interdependent nature uh, are actually gonna heal us uh, and move us forward in a good way. Um, and so, uh, so systemically what that looks like to me, I am not one to dismantle. I made efforts at that. I'm very moved by Audre Lorde, uh, the quote, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools is what she says. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it's even more foolish to try to uh, convince uh, the master to dismantle his own house with indigenous people's tools and Mennonite tools, right? So uh, I, I, I trust the dismantlers to do what they need to do. I trust the people to sue the prisons and to do whatever they need to do to try to reduce the harm that the system is doing. Um, that was not my path. I, that was my path for a while. Uh, and I stepped off from that path to uh, try to do something else. So the analogy I really like is that McDonald's is quite unhealthy. 
and they're all over communities of color. And here they are. And people are like, this is food. Right. And I'm like, that's not food. Right. That's unhealthy. Uh, what does it look like to build a community garden next door where we're offering better food and there's music and there's a barbecue and there's dancing and like we walk past that to get to McDonald's. And how do we lure people into these other ways of doing things? Right. I myself uh, don't call the police. Um, I don't um, I don't. Uh, go to punitiveness when I've been harmed, right? If I can, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to shame anyone who does. And I understand that if you're in the middle of some horrific situation and you feel that you need to pick up the phone to protect yourself, you know, I, I, I do truly hope that you will actually pr be protected in that moment and that people will arrive that can protect you. In my experience, that has never occurred. And I know many, many people who have not been protected. Um, and so for me, what does it look like for us to build our own society of protectiveness such that um, that continues to grow and grow and grow? Uh, and my, my work in that is not to ignore the fact that the system exists, right? Can I convince these new progressive district attorneys to divert cases, right? The kid's been arrested, the person's been arrested, um, but they have not been charged with the crime. Give them to us, let us take care of it. We'll do a better job than you, right? And, uh, and, and let's, and let's show that. And, and so can we, can we start to build these kinds of experiments in? Um, and then the other work I do is entirely off the grid where people can just call um, directly and, and be able to receive uh, an opportunity for restorative justice without engaging the system at all. Uh, we have to grow these things. Somebody came up with the notion, you know, it was actually, unfortunately, Quaker people, I believe, were, were responsible for the entire notion of a penitentiary. The, the inception of this idea was the, was that people would have somewhere to go to be penitent when they had caused harm. Um, and that has turned into quite a monstrosity, right? And so, but somebody came up with these ideas. So what if we came up with our ideas and started to grow them? I live by this motto, the seed never sees the flower. I'm trying to do something that might happen in 50, 100, 200 years. I don't have an expectation uh, that I will in my lifetime see the end of mass criminalization in the United States. I have a hope, I have a wish, um, but I'm 51. So I don't really think that's happening uh, in my lifetime. I hope that we are planting really solid seeds and that we are starting to figure out how to nurture those seeds in a way that future generations can. Uh, sometimes I think what I do, my entire work is cave paintings. I'm expecting, I'm, I'm, I'm painting them now, knowing that they're going to be cave paintings. So what kinds of you know, materials do we need to work with today so that they are cave paintings for the future uh, so they can't be erased? Yeah, those are some of the things I think about. That's so beautiful. I think that also rounds up our conversation beautifully. These were very wise words. And, uh, and I'm also very interested in any kind of collaboration where collective trauma work and, you know, restorative justice and your work can support each other to grow or to paint these cave paintings together. I think that would be really lovely because I think understanding the collective trauma field more and re-relating it to social healing. I think that that's uh, a very good combination. So mm -hmm. I would love that and uh, to stay more yeah. connected to your work. Yeah. And, and I feel so inspired. I listen to you and I can feel the transmission of your passion and your love and how your big heart and your strong spirit. So that's really nourishing. 
And I wish you all the best with your work. And and thank you so much for this time. But I, I would love to stay in conversation. I would love that too. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me uh, be a part of this. I've heard so, so many people post it every year. It's wonderful yeah. what you brought. I think it's a great contribution to the summit. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Yes, let's do keep in touch. Thanks so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Thanks. thank you. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.